jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. The Manhattan Millennial Book Review with host Anuja Jaswal on jasoncharles.net This is Anuja Jaswal, your new host of the Manhattan Millennial Book Review, here on jasoncharles.net arts and culture shows. On this episode, I will be reviewing Borderlands slash La Frontera by Gloria E. Anzalduya. This book was first published in 1987, and it remains a seminal work in the study of literature. So I first came across this novel in a seminar aptly titled Border Crossing. And I was drawn to it for this podcast because of its depiction of hybrid identities. I grew up in Bahrain, which is a small island country near Dubai. I went to British international schools my entire life. I did my undergraduate at the University of Oxford. And now I live in New York and study at Columbia University. But I'm originally from India and I lived there until I was four. And that is the passport I still have. So suffice it to say that I do understand to some extent the sort of mixed cultural experiences and hybrid identities. Borderlands is a semi-autobiographical piece that narrates Anzal Duya's experience of growing up on a borderland between the United States and Mexico. It's not just about spatial borders, though. She also refers to the divisions between Latino and non-Latino, male and female, homosexual and heterosexual. Near the opening, Anzal Duya describes the border as a 1,950-mile-long gash, cutting through her body, cutting through cultures. When I think of this book, I both think of that really violent and upsetting image. But I also sort of think of that dividing line becoming a light almost. I think that the general trend of this is that it takes the very upsetting history behind the US-Mexico border and turns it into a thing of power and positivity. What really struck me about Anzal Duya was that she's perfectly able to criticize and maintain her own culture, which is something I personally relate to because having grown up in a country like Bahrain, which is very close to more controversial spaces like Saudi Arabia, and being from a place like India and yet not growing up there, I always found it difficult to talk to my friends from places like the United Kingdom and criticize parts of those cultures without buying into the general sort of demonization of the East, I suppose. And so this passage really stood out to me, she says. I fear no betrayal on my part, because unlike Chicanos and other women of color who grew up white who have only recently returned to their native cultural roots, I was totally immersed in mine. It wasn't until I went to high school that I saw whites. Until I worked on my master's degree, I had not gotten within an arm's distance of them. I was totally immersed and low Mexicano, a rural peasant isolated, Mexicanismo, To separate from my culture, as from my family, I had to feel competent enough on the outside and secure enough inside to live life on my own. Yet, in leaving home, I did not lose touch with my origins, because Lo Mexicano is in my system. I am a turtle. Wherever I go, I carry home on my back. I think that passage is really powerful, because on one hand, her experience is really the opposite to mine. I I went to school in incredibly cosmopolitan and international spaces. I grew up with people from all over the world. I don't really have the strong sense of my Indian culture growing up. 
And yet that line, I am a turtle, wherever I go, I carry home on my back. That's a sort of confidence that I really strive for and want to inhabit in daily life because I think a lot of the cultured anxieties that I have have to do with not having a space that I feel fully entitled to, not having a home that I could return to one day. And I think the strength of that statement and almost the simplicity of the sentence structure there really stands out to me. One of the lines that stayed with me after reading this was the following. I have so internalized a borderland conflict that sometimes I feel like one cancels out the other and we are zero, nothing, no one. Now, as someone who has spent a lot of her time in cosmopolitan spaces, not really knowing where I fit in, not really knowing where I will eventually fit in, I think that that sentence really stood out to me. The falling away of it, when she says we are zero, nothing, no one. Just the erosion of identity in that part and this idea that you've internalized this this conflict, that it's not really something that began with you, but it's something that you now hold quite strongly. And I feel like when I speak to my friends about it, there's always a sort of a freedom and a constriction to it in that I would often phrase it as I belong everywhere and nowhere all at once. Anzaldia sort of inhabits this hope in a maybe a different way. When I talk about belonging everywhere, I mean that I feel like a chameleon. I feel like I could adapt myself to fit most cultures that I live in. I mean, I've moved to the States from the UK. And even though, in my opinion, they are more similar than different, learning the new slang has been, has been interesting. And it's been interesting to be called out on my little anglicisms. But what Anzaldia expresses here is rather a really strong sense of culture that she holds within herself that she's able to take with her, not really a malleable sense of identity that adapts to the new spaces that she lives in. And yet the complications of the culture that she grew up in, Chicano and Mexican, sort of inflected by this borderland between Mexico and the USA, is what's really interesting to me here. It's interesting to me that she could grow up with such a shifting culture. Earlier in the novel, she describes herself as living on the thin edge of a barbed wire. The sense of pain and division that cuts through her identity throughout the work, she somehow manages to turn into this strong sense of cultural belonging that she's then able to take with her as she encounters different people and different cultures and different races. And I think there's something very powerful in that transformation. And there's something very powerful in the way in which she expresses it. One of the most memorable aspects of reading this book is how it uses language. As a work, it is relentlessly bilingual. Anzalduya flows in and out of Spanish, having entire swathes of the text, sometimes in a different language. And on one hand, as someone who doesn't speak Spanish, this can feel alienating, this can feel difficult, but I think that's part of the point. She explains this in the fifth chapter of the novel, or the fifth part of the first section of this narrative that is hard to categorize, something that we will come back to later on, entitled How to Tame a Wild Tongue, where she outlines the conflict between speaking Chicano Spanish which is different from both continental Spanish and Spanish in other parts of South America, and English, and living between those two languages. She speaks about the difficulty for finding a language for people who are neither Spanish nor live in a country in which Spanish is the first language. She says, 
What recourse is left to them but to create their own language? A language which they can connect their identity to, one capable of communicating the realities and values true to themselves. A language with terms that are neither Espanol ni Inglés, but both. We speak of patois, a forked tongue, a variation of two languages. I think, again, just the declarative nature of her sentences in this section is very powerful because she's very clear about the fact that her people have to invent their own language to capture the unique experience of living on the cusp of all of these cultures, but also inhabiting a very specific linguistic space between these two recognizable languages, Spanish and English, because Chicano Spanish, as she outlines, is not necessarily the same as the Spanish spoken elsewhere. And the particular mixture of English and Spanish that she creates throughout the work, I think she's doing something more than just speaking in a way that's comfortable to her. She's making a very particular point about needing to create your own language to capture those experiences. As someone who grew up bilingual, I think this was something that really stayed with me during the reading experience of this book, because I thought she really captured the experience of straddling two cultures at times. When I first moved to the UK for university and I was suddenly surrounded by people who weren't bilingual because I went to international schools my entire life, it had never been a special thing to speak two languages. But I remember the first time that I was on the phone to my parents in front of my new university friends, and they commented that sometimes I would switch languages in the middle of a sentence. And for them, who only spoke English, of course, only being able to understand snatches of my conversation, to switch at maybe like the most counterintuitive points, to hear them describe their experience of hearing my phone conversations made me reflect on my bilingual identity in a way that I hadn't before. And I think that Anzal Duya's choice to write this book, slipping in and out of those languages, sometimes in the middle of a sentence, sometimes in the middle of a line of poetry, I think that she's representing something very specific about the experience of growing up with multiple languages, multiple languages that you maybe don't speak in the right way. It's sort of the bane of my existence that up until two years ago, I really thought that when I spoke Hindi, I spoke it with no discernible accent. I now know this is absolutely not the case, and my friends who also speak the language have pointed this out on multiple occasions. But I think there's something to be said for people who inhabit multiple cultures speaking these recognizable languages in their own way. And I think that that is something that Anzal Duya is perhaps indicating. Now, if you've made it this far into the podcast, you may notice that I've used many, many words to describe this book. I've corrected myself and I've gone back on it. I've used novel and work and peace. That's because one of the most distinctive things is that it's very formally disjunctive. At no point in it can you say, this is poetry, this is prose, this is a series of essays. There are sections of it that you may try to categorize using a single word, but as a whole, Borderlands slash La Frontera does not fit into the available categories of literature that we have. It's impossible to say, this is a novel, or this is a work of poetry, or this is a collection of essays. It is at once none of those things and all of those things. And I think the very specific points that she makes about identity and language really fits into that. And yet, if we look at the structure of the whole work, there's two distinct sections. One has seven chapters, one has six. The first section is mainly essays or prose, and the latter is mainly poetry. And so there's something to be said here 
that it almost seems like it's organized chaos, that there are central sections that seem to be easily categorized. And if you look at it as a whole, you could say that there's some sort of cohesion to it. And I think one way to explain this, one way to explain Anzaldúa's tendency towards mixing forms and yet setting them out into sections that make it easy for readers to maybe navigate the whole work, is that she is also famous for editing and compiling anthologies of writing by women of colour. The most famous being This Bridge Called My Back and Haciendo's Caras, Making Face, Making Soul. And perhaps there's something to be said here for the act of presenting texts that question the very notion of categorization in a practical and organized manner. There are probably a million more things to be said about this magnificent piece of work. But to conclude, I'll leave it here. If I had to use one sentence to express what I think the work is trying to show, then it would be this. Borders are both completely arbitrary and form fundamental truths about human life and identity that are difficult to ignore. That's the main thing that I take away from this work because that is something that I struggle with throughout my life. Reading Anzaldúa's Borderlands leads me to maybe look at those conflicts in a more positive way, to think about how you can take a difficult to define cultural identity and turn it into a real thing of power and inclusion rather than the opposite. What I would hope is that Borderlands lives on, but in more spheres than it has. So I was reminded of Anzalduya because Columbia University is doing this banner project where they have female women of color just on top of Butler Library and Anzalduya's name is on that list. And I think that's incredible because, you know, this particular work was published in 1987 and it still is read widely in academia today. It is still you know, a seminal work of post-colonialism. I'm very confident about its future in academia. I think it will remain relevant and widely read. But I want more people to read this book outside of the university. What I would hope is that it's also read in, you know, just by people for leisure, for maybe fun is the wrong way to describe it, but just outside of that sphere. I want to see it on the shelves in Barnes & Noble, and I want to see people reading it on the subway but I'm not sure that's what will happen but we can hope on the next episode I will be reviewing The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison feel free to send your comments questions or suggestions to me my Instagram handle is ajesswall1997 until next time this is Anuja Jesswall from Uptown Manhattan for the Manhattan Millennial Book Review here on jasoncharles.net arts and culture shows see you on the next episode You've been listening to the Manhattan Millennial Book Review with host Anuja Jaswal on jasoncharles.net. For more information about Anuja Jaswal, check out her Instagram at anujajaswal1997, spelled A-N-U-J-A-J-A-I-S-W-A-L-1997. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.